I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s, and sometimes we even go into the early 90s, which we're going to do today. I am one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I am your other host, Margot Poupard. And we are joined today by a very special guest, Ali Hofkosik. Welcome, Ali. Hi. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I feel like we're podcast soulmates. I love I really think so. <laughs> For I sure. loved your episode of Angus Thongs and Full Frontal Snogging because yes. that book, I think, really deeply influenced me into wanting to be a writer, even though hearing your podcast episode made me cringe at times remembering some of those scenes. But yes, I think we are kindred pod spirits. I know. I'm so sorry for ruining it for you it's and okay. for everyone else. But it is like that one was that was a ride like that was whew, that was a ride. I personally really loved your episode on the Kirsten books because uh, I loved Kirsten, American Girl, uh, when I was younger because she was the only blonde one when I was a kid, like me. <laughs> but I ref- well, that's forgotten- a reason to like anything, right? Is when course. they have the same hair color as you, yeah. But I had forgotten just how dark of a turn they take in just book one, really. I mean, she she goes through quite a bit within 20 pages of us getting into this book that my eight or nine-year-old heart was just like, what? <laughs> I know. And you at eight or nine were probably like, oh, well, like, let's just move on to the next page. Like when you're a kid, you're just, I think you feel things, but you're also able to like, I don't, I don't know. There's something about not reading between the lines or something that happens in your kid. You can just like recover more quickly. It's like when three-year-olds bounce off the ground at the playground and they, they don't even get hurt. It's the same thing emotionally when you're reading a book about like a seven-year-old's best friend dying on a ship coming from Sweden to America. Like (laughs) I I totally didn't 
absorb it as a child. And then I read it at 30 and I was like, holy shit, was this allowed? It's crazy that (laughs) with my cousins, we used to put on the Kristen play from American Girl Doll every once in a while. And one of the cousins had to invariably die at the beginning at some point. And we never, we always thought it was really, really funny until we were adults and we're like, oh no, how did she recover from this traumatic event? Yeah. Oh my God. I totally forgot about the plays. Did you have like the kit? Yes, I did oh for gosh. for Kristen and for Samantha because I'm a brunette. So of course I had to love Samantha, right? So. I mean, same. Oh my gosh. You're bringing <laughs> me back. Like I forgot about the freaking play kits. Those were cool. Like that was a really great add-on product. I really think that's what sold my mom because she's like, oh, well, this will keep her busy for hours because she'll read the book. Then she'll do the play. I mean, she also didn't take into account that she would have to watch the play multiple times, possibly over the same day. So joke's on her. Yeah. Also, moms are like history. Yeah. yeah. It's history. It's historical and also like girl power maybe. I don't know. Here you go. I mean, my first foray into American Girl was definitely Felicity books because I grew up in Virginia. And so I remember as a kid going to Colonial Williamsburg with my family for like a day trip or a weekend trip as you do. And uh, and then obviously then being introduced to the Felicity set of books. So yeah, there was always this like, oh, I you can buy these books for me at the book fair. Like there's a historical element to it. This isn't trash. <laughs> um, it's educational before, mom. Exactly. Before we, we go into today's topic, I do want to give you some of your creds out here, Ali, because you are, in fact, a writer, editor, content manager. Your work's been published in outlets, including Marie Claire, Cosmo, Real Simple, Hello Kiggles, Refinery29. And of course, you are the host of the SSR podcast, which we should note stands for both Shit She Read, but is also a shout out to Silent Sustained Reading, which was a term used at my Montessori school when I was a kid. So I was really happy to hear that you were aiming for both there in titling your podcast. <laughs> yeah, it was so funny because when I was um, deciding on the name for the podcast, I was I was really stuck on the SSR thing. And I found like this old, like lame scratch paper I had a, a while ago um, that had all of the like different combinations of words I put together that worked for SSR. And I, I was like, I don't know. I think shit she read is the best option. But I was really nervous because I was like, oh, what if everybody thinks that I'm trying to be like a badass about books and whatever. And all of my friends were like, no, shit she read is great. But then I had this second wave of anxiety where I was like, what if people don't know what SSR is? Like, was I the only one? Was my school district was my school district in Pennsylvania like unique in having SSR, a silent sustained reading? But it turns out that this is like a thing that a lot of 90 kids, 90s kids especially can relate to and like also love. Oh my God. Yeah. It was definitely in my high school. So I'm surprised to hear um, that it's only from your Montessori school. Cause in high school, especially in English class, there was always at least once or maybe twice a week we would have to do sustained silent reading. And my favorite memory from that was I was read my first David Sedaris book like in 10th grade and English teacher recommended it to me and it was supposed to be silent but I was laughing so hard that we had to like end it early because I was really distracting everyone so I have a lot of fond memories of sustained silent reading I love that you had it in high school though we I think it stopped in elementary school I feel like I mean I've said this on my podcast before I feel like I had kind of like a lame English education in high school. Um, we never like got to read for fun. We never got to write creatively, which was what I loved so much when I was younger. Um, so I'm super jealous that you had SSR in high school. 
I I did go to a high school in Burbank, which has a lot of industry uh, people. Yeah, so okay. and and like Burbank Unified School District is also very different than LA Unified School District. And so we had like a lot of special programs that were kind of incorporated into it because, you know, to intrigue our more creative side. Like we had like a full on broadcast journalism department that I was a part of for a while where we had like nice cameras and like IMAX. I mean, I was I know how lucky we were. It was like an extremely for especially for a public school. It was like a great experience. Yeah, that sounds awesome. Sadly, we I think we did away with it in high school as well. But I do remember, I think we would sometimes once in a while, like have a warm up after like beginning class would have like 10 minutes to read and then go into discussion. But definitely something I feel like all offices should have, you know, SSR, like there's just a point in the day (laughs) where it's just like, you know what, 30 minutes, just like, ring the bell, everybody hit the book that you're currently reading forget about work let's let's bring in ssr and then my what i believe might be a million dollar startup idea is to have adult hello sharks emily has an idea for you (laughs) adult book fairs hear me out all right if you're in an office building which no one is in right now but you know in non-pandemic times if you are in an in an office building i believe an adult book fair and i don't mean like adult book Fair. I just mean okay. Like, I'm glad you heard that. Fair. Okay, cool. Okay, yeah. <laughs> book fair for that. That is meant for adults. But having that in an office, I believe, could really just inspire for me. Just like makes me feel all nostalgic thinking about it. I think there's an idea here, sharks. If you are listening, <laughs> please hit me up. <laughs> I think it's a great idea. I mean, I, I can't say I have a lot to invest, but like if you need an emotional investment, um, like sweat equity investment, I'm here for you. <laughs> Perfect. I appreciate that. Well, before we dive into this a bit too much more in my business endeavors, we are today going to be talking about the ridiculous <laughs> book series that is Sweet Valley High and all its subsequent um, how do we say this? Uh, subsidiaries, spinoffs, whatever you want to call them. <laughs> My God, I'm still in business talk. Um, but really, this the synergy this- behind this book series is astounding. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, when we get into just how many books and how many spinoffs and and each of those spinoffs, how many books they got in return. I mean, it's just there is an army of ghostwriters out there that. Can pr- proudly put that credit on their resume. <laughs> but before we dive into it too much, one of the important discussion questions, as always, is Are you a Jessica or are you an Elizabeth? This is a great question. Um, so thank you for asking it, obviously. Um, this is a question that I, I, I've spent way too much time thinking about it. And I've already probably spent more time answering this question than you maybe would have imagined. But because of the nature of my podcast, I have thought about this a lot. I've done three episodes about Sweet Valley High. I've discussed this question every time. Am I already ruining this podcast by going on and on and on about this question? I always thought that I was an Elizabeth as a kid. And so when I go into reading the books as an adult, I'm like, still an Elizabeth, obviously. I'm going to just like spoil this and say they both suck. Like Elizabeth is not as cool and chill and smart as you thought that she was. Yes. But if you're asking me to pick, I think I guess I'm still an Elizabeth. That was a very long answer to your question. But if I have to choose, I'm not happy about it. I will choose Elizabeth. What about you, Margo? Ooh, I think I I think growing up, I 
read it as an Elizabeth, but in reality, as a teen, I was definitely a Jessica, like being like boy crazy and changing myself and just kind of being like, you know, low-key, like harmless slut vibes like that was. And so I just very much identified with her, just kind of exploring every avenue to be the most popular and have all the boys like her. And I always appreciated, even though all of her fashion choices, at least in the book, didn't seem to um, land, maybe, I admired her taking a risk. Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Emily? Yes. I definitely was an Elizabeth. That being said, like you said, Ali, you know, rereading these characters as an adult, they're both awful. And I feel like Elizabeth reads to me the way I feel about her is the way I felt about the TV character Joey Potter on Dawson's Creek. Like as I was younger watching reruns, I was like, oh, Joey's great. Go Joey. And now as an adult, I rewatch and I'm just she's the worst. She's a very annoying character. It's a weird thing to compare it to. But that for me was really what I thought of. Well, they're both soap operas, so I don't think it's that weird. Like when you th- when you think about it, they're both teen soap operas that kind of want to tackle deeper issues, but maybe kind of do them in a more shallow way that reads as deep when you're younger until you actually kind of go through that. And you're like, well, I guess you guys kind of picked the most broad way that you could tell the story. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a tendency in in all of this sort of flavor of pop culture, whether it's TV or books or movies. Everything is made very simple and binary. And so um, the example that comes to mind for me is my personal favorite early aughts show, The O.C. And I feel like in the years of The O.C., it was like you're either a Marissa or a Summer or like maybe an Anna if you're really funky and cool. Um, And it felt like those are your only two options. If you are a teen who is like totally immersed in this pop culture at this time of life as I was – And I did not really want to be a summer because at the time I was like, summer's way cooler than I am. And Marissa is just like beautiful. Obviously, Marissa met a very tragic end, um, which I just like seemingly, again, sort of like the meet Kirsten thing skimmed over. And now as an adult, I go back and I watch and I'm like, oh, no, like both of these people are so problematic and so deeply troubled. And that's kind of how I feel about Sweet Valley High. It's like we are presented these options. Like you're either a Jessica or an Elizabeth. If you're into this pop culture, you have to choose. And uh, when you go back and take a look at it, it's like the choices really aren't that great. Um, And there's actually like life isn't that simple. Like (laughs) it's not all that binary. And also like there's this overlap of terribleness in both of your options. Right. It sort of feels a little bit like picking the lesser of two evils that suits your personality. But and I also think that it that kind of happens a lot just in soap operas in general. And then even sometimes in like comedies, too, they sort of want you to like pick a team, quote unquote, like you're either on team. Well, I guess this is more of like a drama and this is also like a white, a problematic YA series, but like your team Edward or your team Jacob. And like, you have to pick one, even though they're both equally crappy and are both, you know, you could date someone who's like not dead or like a werewolf. I I just, I feel like there are got, there has to be better options. And my problem with the, at least the first Twilight movie was her parents are completely absent from her life. So they just let her do fuck shit all the time. Mm -hmm. And I think Sweet Valley High has a little bit of that in it, even though Francine Pascal's sort of headcanon for where the Wakefield's parents come from is sort of like that I never thought came across really. But we can get into that when we start talking more about her backstory. 
Yeah. And when you're in the thick of it, like it really does feel like those are your only two options. I mean, I think your example about Team Edward and Team Jacob is a great one because if you are like a Twilight stan and you're super into it and that's like you live, breathe, think, eat, sleep, Twilight, it does begin to feel like those are your only options. And I think especially with a series like Sweet Valley, there are so many fucking books, as you mentioned, that like if you fell down this rabbit hole as a kid, especially in the 80s, 90s or aughts, like this could become something that you eat, breathe, eat, sleep, whatever. Um, and it does begin to feel like, well, these are the two options that you have. And not only do you have to pick one that you prefer, but you almost have to pick one, as you mentioned, like you have to identify with in this case. Like it's not just who you like and who you want to be friends with, but who are you? Yes. And it feels so, especially at a young age, it feels so permanent too, right? right? Like, oh, I have to be this way forever. No, I was just going to say, and it's kind of interesting you say that because I feel like throughout the whole books, you know, the whole book series, regardless of what the plot line was, they always lead in with the same thing. Like 16 year olds with perfect size, six figures, sun streaked blonde hair, blue green eyes. Like, so you have to not only pick, but then you have to fit into this box of like what they look like, who they are, who their personalities are in high school, which seemingly is both like you can be a cheerleader um, and then you can also be an editor of the school paper. And then you can also be, you know, the two out of three people nominated for homecoming queen. Like there's just this whole, you know, it's, it's both a, you have to adhere to this identity, but also a, how does one live up to these standards that have been set up every single book over and over again? Yeah, I totally agree. And I think there's this sense with these books where it's like, yes, you can be bookish and you can be more into school than boys, but don't worry, you can also be hot. Like that to me is sort of the underlying theme of Elizabeth. It's like, no matter how much we hear about her other interests, maybe the interests that Jessica doesn't have. And I'm not trying to place a value judgment on like books over clothes or books over cheerleading or whatever, but I just think that this is how things tend to like be played out in our pop culture. It's like, I don't know. I feel like no matter what we hear about Elizabeth, it's always undercut by like her hotness. Like, don't worry. She still looks exactly like Jessica. She's just as hot. She's just as thin. She's just as blonde. Um, And so like she can be as smart as she wants to be. And I think especially at this time in history, like that was, I feel like trailblazing feels wrong because now it feels so backwards. But I, I would think that maybe at the time there weren't that many characters who had been allowed to sort of wear both of these hats. Um, now it feels like completely gratuitous. I don't know. Again, hotness. Um, but I don't I don't know. It's just everything is undercut by their looks. I think it has to be a product a little bit of the time and also kind of like Francine, I guess, has more of like a, a background um in soap operas where it is like everything is about how like beautiful this is the most beautiful woman in the world and this woman is also beautiful but also dangerous right and and i think that when you have to play in such broad stereotypes it sort of reduces everybody down to that and so if a woman's most inherent value to her during this time or at least when it comes to trying to sell something because in her she had like an interview i'm sure you've read it in um, ew where she talks about yeah. how she had a hard time kind of selling it at first because mm-hmm. they were like well no one cares about women and no one wants to see these kinds of stories and so maybe it sort of feels a little bit like that's in there to like please some sort of executive or whoever you know the audience is that's giving them the money to write this you know franchise. Yeah. And that's a really interesting interview that you just mentioned. And I've read it like more times again than I'd probably like to admit. Um, 
I, I think it's fascinating. She's really interesting. Yeah, she is. And her background and how she, she, even though she doesn't personally write any of them, she has like a team of them. She has, she created this like entire Bible where you've got these like complicated backstories, like I said, where Jessica and Elizabeth's parents are, uh, they're Jewish and they're from Europe and they like fled the Nazis and like, and then they lived to California for like a better life. And I was like, that never comes across to me whatsoever. Like that's their like lineage a little bit. And it sort of just feels, I don't know. It, it feels totally out of left field, but I guess in a later book series that kind of explain the Wakefield family history a little bit more, but you know, you pick up whatever the first one is double love. You would never, that doesn't come across. You just feel like they're just, hot California girls that probably they probably look like Cher from Clueless and they drive like a white Jeep Wrangler with like no top on and the top of the car on. And that's the impression that you get. And you wouldn't get that there's this more complicated, richer backstory unless she told you or you were a ghostwriter hired to write a story. Yeah. And didn't you find that she was just kind of like shitting on the whole thing in that interview? Like there's this section I have quoted somewhere in my notes here, but where she talks about how like she'd written books before that like you know, they were sort of, she thought they were more highbrow and like a more um, like refined sense of humor. And she wrote Sweet Valley for like normal people to understand. And um, yeah, I have this quote here where she says, I never really had the respect for Sweet Valley that I had for my other YA books. I felt it was kind of a soap opera and that was kind of a lesser thing. I was wrong because it had an enormous effect on people. Essentially, it was very important and deserved respect. Now I see it. At least a quarter of the fan mail that I got started off with, I used to hate to read. And she goes on to just talk about how like she was surprised that people liked it. And I just think it's so interesting that like she spends quite a bit of that interview kind of like shitting on the thing that ended up being her most famous idea. And then she goes on to say another similar interview actually in The Guardian. She says, I wanted this to be read by a bigger audience. The books I had written before were for a more sophisticated, educated audience, but I wanted Sweet Valley to be for everyone. When you do something like that, you have to give up some things. Humor is one of the things I gave up. It's a very sophisticated tool and it didn't work in these books. Yeah, she does talk a lot about how she wanted to make a more broad speaking book series because teenagers might change, you know, over the years, like their clothes and their outward appearance, but they're still the same, you know, in their head and their heart, which I kind of have to disagree with a little bit. I don't think that every teen encounters a problem where they are ashamed of speaking Spanish and then they out themselves by speaking Spanish so that they can save a kid in the well. Like, and I I do find it really quite interesting that even in reading it now, again, I am very struck by how like white it is. And I know that she's not completely oblivious to that issue, but she also thinks that because she sort of wrote it in this colorblind way, which I find to be, you know, uh, a symptom of a deeper issue uh, and we don't need to get into that, but she wrote it in the sort of colorblind way that she's like, Oh, I never really kind of thought about it. It's like, well, you kind of had to thought you had to think about it a little bit. Like I just kind of found some of the stuff that she said a little bit hard to believe in addition to like just the shock of her, not really caring all that much about this book series that made her kind of a household name, but that she also doesn't want anyone to take any liberties with her material whatsoever because she kind of takes this whole like, well, I'm the creator of it and the book publisher trusts me. And so I have to trust you. And so you have to do exactly what I say. So I don't know. I thought a lot about Charlize Theron in Young Adult while reading interviews with her. Same here. I think for me that it kept coming up like over and over again and just thinking how funny it was like 
ironically, that Diablo Cody, you know, which we'll get into later, has been behind, you know, the ongoing uh, saga of the reboot uh, around Sweet Valley. But just how perfectly Diablo Cody, like, embodied the, the, the main plots and themes of Sweet Valley with the book series, which I believe is called Waverly Prep, is the, the parody book series that Charlize Theron's character writes for in uh, Young Adult. But yeah, just like encapsulates just the beginning three chapters, because really that's that's what's interesting about those books is like every single book begins somehow, some way with basically the same writing and the same kind of chapters, which which is very big, I find, in a lot of the YA series, like Babysitter's Club did that as well, um, in addition to its spinoff Little Sister, which I know, Ali, you've talked about on your podcast before, but Karen will dedicate like an entire chapter to her parents' divorce and her, her family situation. Um, and it's every single book, regardless of a plot line, you're going to get that same chapter or variation of it. Yeah, which if, if you're a kid, especially for a series like Babysitter's Little Sister, which is intended for a younger audience, like there's something very comforting about that. We've talked about that on my show quite a bit because anytime we talk about one of these series, it's like, okay, here we go with the standard intro. Um, and it, to us as adults, especially if we grew up with the books and we're familiar with the characters, it is a little bit of an eye roll moment. But I think when you're a kid, it's very comforting. And I don't know about you, but I didn't read these books in order when I was growing up because it was usually based on what I could get at the library. Um, I didn't read Sweet Valley High chronologically. I didn't read Babysitter's Club chronologically. It all depended on what my school library had. And so I think that that's changed now because it's much easier for kids to access books chronologically, whether it's on an e-reader or like I just think libraries are structured differently now. But I I think kids now, and even as an adult now in 2020, I'm used to reading things in order. In in the 90s, because the series were written this way, you didn't necessarily need to. Like you could pluck any of these books off of the shelf, and because you get that intro, you would be like right in the story, and you you would be fine. Totally, I don't. I feel like this series, Babysitters, Goosebumps. Like there are a number of serialized stories that I never read in order and never got the impression that I had to. Yeah. It just, I felt like you could just pick up where you, wherever you were and you weren't that confused. Again, kind of like a sitcom, kind of like a soap opera. Like you have an idea of the characters and like possibly the tropes that they might fall into because if you've been reading for any amount of time, you can kind of, your brain, you subconsciously kind of figure that out even as a kid. So when you drop in, you kind of have like an expectation like goosebumps are going to be scary. Babysitters Club is going to be about four friends that are my age. Sweet Valley is going to be about these wacky twins. And so in some ways, I kind of appreciate that and miss that a little bit. I guess the closest thing that I had to it, like in my early 20s that I really loved reading was the True Blood series. I felt like that I could pick up whatever one in any order and still enjoy it. But I don't really kind of get that from a lot of other book series now. No, totally. I'm trying to think of like other big major book series that stand out that way now too. Yeah, I think you're right. And I also think that I don't know if if people are publishing book series that are quite as big as before. And maybe it's because I'm out of touch. But I just feel like why a book series might be a little bit smaller than they used to be or in the case of Sweet Valley, and you look at the overview, there's 181 total books. There's 88 for the Sweet Valley kids. There's 169 Sweet Valley twins. And like the list goes on and on. I mean, it's just hundreds upon hundreds of books. I don't think any YA series that are coming out today, I think there's also a sense of you're just not 
getting as many of these books before and as, as you used to. And I don't know if it's because of, you know, quality over quantity or I don't know the reason why, but it is very interesting to me that it, it seems like why a series nowadays would not publish just this many books. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, there are a few. I know Diary of a Wimpy Kid has a lot of titles relative to others that are published more recently. I don't know exactly how many. And this is a whole other subject that we don't. I I do not want to get into. But I do think that um, Harry Potter set the tone for some of this. Like, I think the shift really started when the Harry Potter books came out. I feel like now that sort of like seven eight book arc is almost the magic number. And it's sort of like where a lot of series are maxing out for this age group. So I think that's a great point. I do think that there's been a transition to shorter series. Um, And I do think that Harry Potter and the author who will not be named at the moment has a lot to do with that. For sure. So, of course, one of the amazing things about Sweet Valley High that we have to get into are these wild plot lines. I mean, like these ghostwriters, I know they've all gone on to different things. I know there's one who I read an interview where she was like an Emma, a PhD candidate. But the plot lines, we just we have to talk about these. I mean, Ali, Margot, what are some standouts for you guys? Okay, so the first um, the first Sweet Valley High episode that we did on my podcast all the way back in like the fall of 2018, I don't remember exactly what episode number it was, but it was about a book called The New Jessica. I think it was book five or so in the series. And it's about how Jessica um, decides that she's like sick of being blonde and like all American. And so she decides that she's going to transform herself into like a Russian, like super intellectual, cerebral high schooler. Um, and she like dyes oh her hair. And and I mean, I'm aware that there are even wackier plots that I'm sure you guys have notes on. Um, but this, I mean, this is like sort of, um, this is like not even that interesting of a plot line relative to the whole series. Because then again, like in a more recent book that I read for a more recent episode, we have Jessica like, going to sign up for some hilarious like computer dating service. And she presents herself as two totally different people, um, Magenta Galaxy and then a French girl. And and they Daniela like fromage. Daniela Fromage, thank you. <laughs> and she like is gonna pose as both of them because she finds two boys that she likes on this again, like hilarious computer dating service in the 80s. And then she and she forces Elizabeth to get involved in a scheme where they're like, it's it would take a whole hour for me to explain the plot. But what I'm saying is, to, to us, this seems wacky. To the Wakefields, this was like sort of a boring installment of the series. Just another Tuesday. <laughs> Just another day. Like trying to like be a normal sister. Like making your sister pretend to be another version of yourself that you've created. That you don't even know. So that you can date a boy that you don't even like. Because you have literally gone through all of the boys at your school. I think there's a line in that book where Elizabeth, after Jessica proclaims that she's like giving up boys in Sweet Valley, Elizabeth is literally like, Jessica, like all of the boys are going to just throw themselves off a cliff or something. Like this is just normal for them. I do love, I mean, this isn't a plot line, but in general, I feel like they have like a lot of computer-based hijinks that happen across this book series that always kind of made me laugh a little bit. And I do remember the dating profile one pretty vividly because- I just remember being like, oh, wow, like this, it fed into what I always assumed having a twin would be like, which is you guys are always switching places or is like playing pranks. So them switching places for a date totally made sense to me. 
But and I'm sure, Emily, I don't mean to steal your thunder, but definitely the Jessica joins a cult plot line oh, yeah. was mm-hmm. like, I don't even know. Mm-hmm. And then I just this is I mean, this goes into like, again, more soap opera tropes, but people being like paralyzed then not paralyzed. And then like someone someone kills Jessica's boyfriend in one of the books. And she's like, I felt like very nonchalant. Like, I, I just again, like you guys just said, it's just another day in the old Wakefield house. So anytime any of that stuff is happening and then in one of the spinoff series, there was a trilogy about murderous doppelganger twins named Margot and Nora, which I was. Well, I remember them. I remember them. <laughs> it just feels like some of this also feels a little bit like Buffy the Vampire Slayer to me in some ways because it's like, do you guys live on a hellmouth? Is that why you have murderous twins that are like your doppelgangers that try to murder you? I just like whose life is who has a life like this? I mean, Sweet Valley is just wild. It's just a wild place to live. And computers, you know, computers, they they're dangerous. More wild. Like, put technology in the hands of teens and forget it. Things are going to be crazy. Game over. I wonder if they ever covered them like terrorizing like an AOL chat room or something. I, I don't recall oh that book, but I hope can it's there. Can you imagine Wakefield on Instagram? Or, oh my no. God, can you imagine, imagine <laughs> them with TikTok. Like, it would they would bring down the civilization like oh, they, it would just oh my gosh i'm not gonna sleep tonight thinking about it at least five <laughs> at least five books devoted to catfishing plots i i kid you not like there they would be catfished <laughs> so uh-huh. hard and then so nev, hard. nev from catfish the mtv series would there would be a crossover at one point of course like there's just there's a lot here that their plot lines walk so catfish in real life could run Identity stealing is a very repetitive theme in these books. There is in super thriller number eight, Alice Wakefield, the twins mom, wins a trip to a spa owned by a woman with a disfigured face. And guess what? It turns out the owner is a former college classmate of Alice's who used to get name called Taddy Mule because she was so ugly. And her revenge plot involves kidnapping Alice, the twin's mom, getting plastic surgery to look like her, and then murdering her so she can steal her identity, just as, you know, one regularly does in Sweet Valley. Right. I mean, what would you do? Like, would you do anything different in that situation? (laughs) Come on. I mean, when I think of- be reasonable. Of course. When I think of, like, plotting revenge on the people who have wronged me in my life, uh, getting plastic surgery to look like them and murder them and then steal their identity is just number one on my list of how I can get back. Just, done and dusted, you know? I just want to know what the timeline is on this revenge. Because to get all of that elective plastic surgery, like, you got to have, like, a long tail on this revenge plan. There's a recovery time. You got to get the money. Then you got to get – exactly. But you got to get the money together because it's not cheap. And then you got to, like, have the recovery time. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And then you got to like heal. And then you also need to let your face settle if I've ever learned anything from Real Housewives. So Mm -hmm. I just, yeah, I just wonder, you know, by the end of it, aren't you just like, I I feel like I'd get too tired to execute the rest of my revenge. (laughs) Meaningful revenge takes time. Like if you, if if you want it to mean something, you have, it's a long game. As we've seen again, fellow Real Housewives fans, um, revenge is always a long game. You you have to plant the seeds early. And it sounds like this character did exactly that with Alice Wakefield. I have to also point out here that there is, you talked about a vampire love story at one point, I believe. There is also a werewolf plot line because all of Twilight's main points have been covered in this book series. There is a set of books in which, oh, of course, Jessica and Elizabeth conveniently get journalism internships um, and, and get to go live in England for a bit. This is the Same. course of, of, yeah, as one, you know, normally does, uh, they, over the course <laughs> of three books, there is a werewolf guy, which is really just a guy who dresses up as a werewolf and murders people by ripping out their throat. And in this plot line, Elizabeth, we find out that she is in fact dating the murderer. And then Jessica is going out with the guy whose father owns the paper because nepotism. And uh, the one who everyone thinks is the murderer, including the dad, because he's one, a werewolf expert, because that's totally a thing. Um, and two, as the owner of the paper, the dad refuses to publish the stories about the werewolf murders because he's afraid of drawing attention to his son who he thinks is the werewolf killer yeah it's a tangled web it's a a tangled web wait can you imagine if i was like you imagine if i was like my dad is a werewolf expert um (laughs) that would be an interesting twist no i mean there's a lot of very tangled webs being woven here and that's what kept us coming back for more I know soap operas are obviously on TV. There are less than there used to be before. I think a, quite a few of the the big mainstays have been canceled in the last decade. But really, I, I mean, these stories are just fantastic. Like, you know, I know that they are pure trash in many ways, but I have to applaud. I do think like the creative energy <laughs> that went into putting the in, these stories together, like... And there's no wonder that like among the ghostwriters is, like I said earlier, someone who was a PhD candidate, like the level of intelligence you have to get to, to kind of know how to best, you know, put together that wild formula to make it work, like cult kidnappings, vampires, werewolf murder dating, like identity theft, which involves getting a lot of plastic surgery, like it just gets better and better. And I mean, for this to have gone on over the course of what I believe in my really bad math and alley, by the way, you'll find that throughout the episodes of our podcast, I like to just put weird numbers out, do some number crunching mm-hmm. on the air. Some, you know, 400 books here. Well, but- that's Jack Shepard of you. Jack Shepard on Armchair Expert is all about fast math. So, you know, we're just following in our our pod, our big podcast footsteps. I appreciate it. We do not have a corrections corner. I will say in this in these episodes, mm-hmm. but but maybe on a mini episode, Marco, I should go back, <laughs> review the math that I've done, and provide any corrections <laughs> on the percentages I've tallied up over the I, years. I don't know. I feel like that's just going to be upsetting. <laughs> I, think I, think should, I think you should stand firm in what you've put out there. I think you should own it. 
Stand in your misinformation, okay? It's fine. That's what Jessica would do. That's exactly <laughs> what Jessica would do. Maybe you are a Jessica after all, Emily. This is what this episode's going to teach us. But then that makes me think, to, you know, we're going to have to get a little political here. Did Jessica end up going to work for the Trump administration? Because with this misinformation, yeah. like, it's very possible. Oh, yes. Like- Jessica is like, she spreads fake news. She is like patient zero of fake news. I feel like she would be like a Kardashian adjacent. Like she would be some sort of influencer. Like I'm in the beauty lifestyle space, possibly like a former bachelor, bachelorette person. I I just see that for her. They both go on reality TV, but that's sort of adjacent to, again, hate to get political. Reality TV is sort of adjacent to the Trump organization. So they could do both. Get Mm -hmm. you a girl who can do both. (laughs) Jessica definitely can maybe do one and a half. (laughs) But in terms of some of the themes that they cover, I they really talk a lot about they stress the importance of looks and body image, even though Jessica and um, Elizabeth are perfect size sixes, which, you know, is refreshing, I suppose, when like the mainstream media like pushes like a size zero to two kind of narrative on everybody. But I have a question. What is a what is a size six in the eighties though versus today? Like I feel like I'd be really upset to know what she really means by a size six, but I choose to see it as like maybe maybe they're not pushing this sort of like oh you have to be a perfect well I guess they are pushing that you have to be a perfect size narrative. But I'm just I always wondered that in my re in my rereads of what does that mean when they just because they harp on it quite a bit. So I was just curious. Yeah, I I made that same point on a recent Sweet Valley episode that I did, and I was like, oh, refreshing. Um, and then my guest brought up a little something called vanity sizing, um, oh. which is – it's terrible that it's a thing, and I think it's it probably is a thing. Um, I mean, I agree with you. Like, I guess if there's anything to be grateful for in all of that, that it's – if there are young girls who are reading these books in 2020, which is hard for me to wrap my head around, um, I guess, you know, to those girls, a size six – is what we all have come to understand a size six to be in 2020, which as you mentioned, is not the size double zero zero two that the mainstream media is constantly pushing as the ideal. So I guess in 2020, I mean, if you're reading with blinders on, maybe there's something to be grateful for, but I do think it's a stretch. And and as you mentioned, it's unfortunate that there's um, any premium at all placed on these girl sizes or like, why are we even reading about their sizes? Why does it matter? Like what size jeans they wear? Um, and why do we have to read about it in every single fucking book? Like nobody cares. And it's so problematic. I think yeah, I what does it do to the plot? I mean, it, it never nothing. really goes anywhere other than to sort of like stress some sort of, and I think that's why it doesn't even hold up now is like, it stresses some sort of ideal that you're either falling short of or are never going to attain. And I think that especially in 2020, you can't really read it with blinders on because you do have, you can find representation of yourself, especially better size representation, whether it be in books or in media, like at least a little less problematic than this. Thank goodness. But it just, I don't understand what it has to do with the book and why we have to talk about it. It doesn't even like relate to their fashion. It doesn't. No, I'd agree. You know, and and I feel like this gets continues to get reinforced in the TV show. Like again, I know we were originally going to talk about the TV show, but like it's bonkers. Like the it's theme- the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It's so <laughs> crazy. I had not seen it until no. I watched the first episode today. It is the wildest shit I've ever watched, and I've watched some wild shit on Bravo. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, well, let's get into the TV show because I do feel like some of my themed questions do extend to the TV show because the hope is sometimes that when you adapt material for a different medium that you can improve upon some of it. And even though Francine Pascal in these interviews has said that she didn't really have anything to do with this or much to do other than some story consulting with this original TV show, I was interested to see if they would take more chances. But And they did. But in terms of only making it more insane somehow. It's worse. <laughs> That's all that I can say. Like, I, I'm sorry if anybody listening, like, was in any way involved. I, I think in terms of, like, if you're looking at it from our 2020 sensibility and sort of, like, the kinds of messages that we're trying to promote in 2020 or the way we want to be having certain kinds of conversations in 2020, I kind of think that the TV show, like, if it's possible, took a little bit of a step back from the books. I would agree. And what I found based on the one episode I watched, again, I've only ever watched one episode. So, like, I'm making a lot of sweeping generalizations here, but it's a Wednesday night and I'm fired up. And that was a weird show. And so, as far as I'm concerned, it took a step back. Oh, no. We love sweeping grand generalizations after watching 20 minutes of one thing. No, bring it on. I've decided. Bring it on. So as someone who's now watched three episodes, I can concur with you and say that what I found was interesting, I did do a little behind the scenes research because I was curious. Among the producers included Haim Sabin, and you might recognize this name because Sabin is responsible for the American adaptation of the Power Rangers TV show. So he was responsible for taking footage from the Japanese version and then Americanizing it by splicing it into this like American teen TV show, which, you know, upon if you ever rewatch that show, not great either. Plot lines are pretty lame pretty one-dimensional characters. So it checks out that the same production team behind the Power Rangers would also have brought that kind of energy to the Sweet Valley TV show. I think what did shock me, though, in terms of the people who created the show, it's Josh Goldstein and Jonathan Prince, both of whom wrote on Blossom and Sister Sister and Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and then went on to write on the show American Dreams, which starred Britney Snow in the early 2000s, which I actually enjoyed. So most of these shows for me, I was I found to be kind of stark contrast. Like, sure, there's some funny comedy. I know Goldstein worked on the Waynes Brothers show, so that's going to be a little more slapstick. But ultimately, in terms of the sitcoms that they had worked on prior to the Sweet Valley show and after, I was a little surprised that it was the same team because I found that, meanwhile, when they were writers on Blossom or Sister Sister, I found that those teenage characters were really well written, were really down to earth, and actually were facing normal teenage plots that actually affect real teenagers on a day-to-day basis. Yeah, that's interesting. And I, I actually had not thought about that show, American Dreams, in a while. That was a good show. Um, and very different, really, if I remember correctly, than all of the other shows that you mentioned they were a part of. No, totally. I think what also interested me was I thought, oh, gee, like, of course, these people are in their 20s, but I didn't realize, like, just how close to 30 some of the cast members were. So one of the main characters, uh, you know, I was looking at their IMDb pages because most of them, you know, haven't really done much since. I know one of the twin actresses has been in a few things here and there, but, but one of the main guys was actually, like, 28 or 29 when the first season aired. So I'm looking at his IMDb profile pic. I'm like, why does he look like he could be my dad's age? And it's, you know, lo and behold, because he's, you know, well into his mid to late 50s at this point. So, um, you know, I feel like this took, it was like a hold my beer moment for 90210 in terms of casting people in their 20s, um, but getting people who are, you know, even closer to 30 in some instances. 
Yeah, they looked, I mean, we are all used to seeing actors that are clearly like not teenagers playing teenagers. That's, we're all pretty much adjusted to that at this point, I think. But these actors really looked mature for high school. I'll use the word mature. Um, I, I just, it was very hard to buy any, but actually, I think that the um, the actors that played Jessica and Elizabeth's friends were like the most convincing. Their yes. girlfriends, yeah, and Lila, like they seemed like they were almost age appropriate for the roles. One thing I found super interesting is that Francine Pascal and her daughter were actually really involved in casting the Double Mint Twins as the twins, and that they went on some like giant casting call across the nation to like find the perfect set of twins. And I just found that to be just an interesting little tidbit. That is interesting. I love that it was a double mint twins that they picked. Yeah. <laughs> and they would go on to be in white chicks, which I totally forgot about. <laughs> and be, what a career. What yeah. a career. Um, the other thing that I found was really interesting and kind of the rewatching of all of this. Cause I think uh, like you, Margo, I had seen this show a few times as a kid. I think I enjoyed it and I don't remember exactly when it aired, but I have a feeling it was around the same time on Saturday mornings as like maybe a safe by the bell or hang time. There were a lot of shows like teen shows of that nature that weren't quite good enough for prime time. But in my rewatching, I, I think what was interesting to me was just the number of episodes, at least in the three that I watched. So I'm going to make a sweeping generalization here. Why are college guys just regularly walking around the Sweet Valley High School campus looking to date 16-year-old girls. Like Jessica manages to date and or sort of hook up with not one, but two college guys in two episodes. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, why was that college guy just like casually walking into the Sweet Valley High School homecoming? Like, is there no security? Also, he was a big fucking guy. Like, it was wild to me. And it, there was just nothing even appealing about him. Not, I mean, I'm sure he's a very nice man as an actor, but I just didn't understand. I didn't understand any of it. And then, like, I also have to – can we talk about the dancing? Can yes. You, oh, like, my God. Please, please. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, let's get into it. It's so in the first episode when <laughs> Elizabeth hilariously wins Homecoming Queen and goes from being, like, really pissed about being nominated to, like, totally comfortable with winning in – 30 seconds flat, no, 10 seconds flat, when she wins and they're like, okay, it's now time for the king and queen to do their official dance. And the official dance isn't some like weird, sappy, awkward, slow dance to I'll Be by Edwin McCain like it was at my high school. It was like some weird, I don't know, obviously like fake music, canned music. But she and Winston Egbert, the homecoming king, like they whip out this hilarious basically choreographed yes. number um and like they're supposed to be nerds like yes she's a hot nerd but like they are nerds why do they just like know this dance it's it's like grease it's like it's like watching yes. the kids in rydell <laughs> high school's auditorium just they just know these dance moves. yes yes it's insane <sighs> insane and then at the end of that same episode jessica is like getting it on on the dance floor at this frat party i have never seen normal humans dance like this at normal human events what is going on i definitely feel like i was given a false sense by two things one that i would always one day like run into an identical stranger who looked like me and it was just constantly reinforced like between the olsen twins and sweet valley twins and sister sister twins that it would just happen to me and then the second one was that i would just break into a choreographed dance with a bunch of people at some point thanks to greece thanks 
thanks to this show. It was just implanted into your brain. I feel like it falls into that trope that teen movies were doing at the time where like even just she's all that. There's like that choreographed dance scene that happens in the middle of that prom. You're like, when did you guys get together to learn all of this? I I don't understand. That's what seventh period is devoted to. Learning a number is hard. Oh my God. Yeah. Seventh period. That's when you all meet in the auditorium and you practice. But like talent shows are hard. Friendships fall apart because of talent shows. Like these are not joking matters. So I don't know how all of these people just know these moves. I'm 30 years old and I like I still know like two dance moves that I can just alternate between at weddings, RIP going to weddings. But like I don't understand that I am I'm out of words. Aren't we all? I mean, truly, I had planned on making learn the parent trap handshake one of my quarantine to-do list items, and it still hasn't happened for, for a good reason. Not before, Emily, we learned the Fat Boy Slim Praise You dance. We That's said true. we were going to do that. That's true. Well, you I guys still... have a lot to do. You really have a lot to do. <laughs> you know, you got to just like pile on the activities at a certain point. <laughs> <laughs> Take that bread making. Any other fun tidbits from the TV show universe other than – see, I was so unfazed by the college guy who's trolling a high school campus because, like you said, Ali, everybody looks too old to be in high school. So I was like, oh, just another tall guy. Just He's he seems like he goes here because everyone's 30. Really? I, loved the, I loved the magazine. Like I loved the moment with the magazine when Elizabeth is like, oh, this this piece of trash with no journalistic integrity. And she's like so above it. And then at the end, like she makes this big deal about how she writes for the school paper. It turns out she writes the gossip column. Like no shame in the gossip column game. But I just think it's so funny that she's like journalism. I do journalism. And then the big secret is that she is the, gossip, the resident gossip columnist at school. And that's like the hilarious finale, which that does happen in the first book in the series, Double Love. But I just thought that was so funny that there's this whole exchange about the magazine and we're meant to believe that Elizabeth is this like serious journalist and twist. She's not really. She might be. And she's going to go to London with an internship. So everybody calm down. But yeah, I liked that moment too. Do we want to get into the reboots? Sure. So I remember when they hired Diablo Cody to do the Sweet Valley adaptation originally, like back in 2009, because she had just released Jennifer's Body. And then when they announced this, like as like her follow up, I was like, oh, that's going to be so cool. And she really loves Sweet Valley High. And then that essentially stayed in like development hell for so long. And I was always really surprised, especially now. I don't know what it is about Sweet Valley High, because I feel like not everybody read the entire series from start to finish, whether in chronological order or not. But everybody seems to have, especially people in our you know, old millennial age group have like a lot of nostalgia for this book series, despite the problematic themes. And I think some of it is attributed to the sort of like soft focused artistic covers that they have. There's something about it that immediately triggers like a scholastic book fair Pavlov dog kind of like response in you. But I was always really surprised, especially recently with all of this nostalgic rebooting that we keep doing, especially with like Netflix and Hulu and Amazon, so many and Apple Plus, whatever, that it hasn't gotten picked up to do any sort of formal series or like forget a movie like another reboot of the series but finally in the last couple of years it seems like there has been some traction in 2017 they had um the writer of legally blonde and 10 things i hate about you and harper dill who writes the mick they signed on to take a stab at it after it lapsed its contract at paramount but then that never really went anywhere and then recently Jessica Gao, who writes on Brick and Morty, but also a bunch of other stuff, is supposed to write the feature screenplay. And 
I don't know if it's going to be like a combination of all the books or if she's going to keep it soapy or try to make it woke or whatever she's going to do. But I hope that this finally sees the light of day. Any thoughts on um, what you would like to see from a Sweet Valley High movie that comes out in the you know future when we can go to movie theaters? I would like to see it be very self-aware. And I think that with Diablo Cody heading it up and, and having a hand in it, I'd like to see it. I don't want it to be so woke that it sort of pushes under the rug like the very real problems that are associated with associated with it, but also like the very like of its timeness that is part and parcel of this series. Like I don't want it to not feel like Sweet Valley. So I don't want it to be I don't want it to be like so woke. I think what I want is for it to have a lot of those core vibes of the original series, but I want there to be sort of like record scratch moments that pull us out of the action and are a reminder of like, hmm, this is kind of hilarious and ridiculous, but like we're all having some nostalgia for it. So I think I think balancing those two elements is going to be really important in pulling it off effectively. I, I like that. Almost like a campy edge to it, if you will, just because yeah. of how ridiculous it is. Yeah. I also just can't wait to see the production design on it. I mean, I think it's going to be so fun to watch. Like, I can't wait to see the casting and the fashion. I can't wait to see Wakefield's house and the car. Like there are just so many things that I want to see. And so that's the other reason that I don't want them to like totally pull back on the ridiculousness of it. Because I think like after all these years, we and the books deserve to see the fully realized world just with that edge of self-awareness. It can kind of take like a soap dish sort of like can't be look at itself. And I mean, I know it didn't, it started in the eighties, but they can even do like a Ferris Bueller, like breaking the fourth wall. And I think depending, I trust the writer to make the right choices because she is a very funny, talented, prolific writer. But I think, I hope that they actually push it through. And I'm more worried about it actually like happening versus like, what's the script going to be like? It's like, let's start shooting it. And like you said, see some like production design stills. And I just want to see it kind of like come to life in a, in a different way. Yeah, no, I mean, I I completely agree as well. I think originally I had been thinking like, oh, maybe this would have to go the way of the new BSC reboot. But I think what works well for that, which, as you were saying, Ali may not work for the Sweet Valley is like, I think with Babysitter's Club, it's young enough that it needed to have that that kind of fresh look, fresh perspective. Um, and and kind of of the time, this is a 2020 series because it's aimed at a younger audience. And I think it did it really well. But I think with Sweet Valley, it's just so batshit crazy <laughs> that I think it will make the most sense for it to not go, maybe go down that road, but to really just instead be able to take a moment, reflect on itself and, and be aware of its campiness, um, its plot twists, and just like how homogenous the whole thing was throughout the series. Yeah, I would love to see them course correct with a little bit uh, diversity added to some of the stories as well. Like even if it's just in the friends, like just show Mm -hmm. some other or like other experiences and you can still keep it insane. Like people that aren't white also have like weird shit happen to them. I don't understand. That's not a hard concept to grasp. But yeah, I look forward to seeing what happens with this. And hopefully it doesn't get downgraded to something that's like, oh, it's just another story for girls. And they can kind of see the inherent value in that kind of audience. And hopefully it'll be on the big screen because I really kind of don't want it to be streaming. I would love to like experience that in a movie theater with other people. Yeah, that would be fun. Totally. So before we end for today, are there any parting thoughts on uh, Sweet Valley High? Parting thoughts on Sweet Valley High. (laughs) 
so funny to even think about. I love that I have spent so many hours of my life at this point, like coming up with not only parting thoughts, but also like opening thoughts, middle thoughts. (laughs) It's so fun. Life is fun. Um, I would say that if you are an old millennial like us and you're out there and you're like, you know what? I really feel like I need a good laugh in the middle of my life falling apart in the middle of a pandemic and not seeing my family and, you know, everybody being angry all the time. It is worth a reread, but just don't take it so seriously. I mean, it is, it's wild to revisit these books and to think about the fact that at any point in your life, picking one of these books out at the library was like a big moment um, because that's certainly how I felt. I think they're fun. I mean, if you can understand and you can sort of like take a little time to parse some of the problematic undertones, particularly as I see them, like I think that the the relationships, the romantic relationships that we see um, as ideals in this series are really unhealthy. So I think if you can like keep an eye on that and, and maybe pay a little extra attention there, it is really a trip to come back to these books. And the characters really are uh, one of a kind or two of a kind if you're Jessica and Elizabeth Wakefield, because guys, they're basically the same. Amazing. So thank you for joining us. Before we go into our, our outro here, a few things. One, do we all have any book recommendations that we want to bring up as you know we are kind of stuck at home right now? Okay. So I've read a few really good ones lately. Have you either of you read Self-Care by Lee Stein? I have no, not. But I'm going to add it to my yes. Goodreads right now. <laughs> okay. So I read it in a few, like maybe four hours. It's super short. And when I tell you that I closed it and I, and I said out loud, that was the best time I've had in a really long time. I actually said that out loud. I had so much fun reading this book. It's this take on the self-care industry. That it's just really fun and the characters are great. And it just makes you think a lot about like your – Instagram and self-care choices in a way that doesn't feel like punitive or condescending, but it's just like good food for thought, but it's also a lot of fun. And then I also more recently, I read a book called Cleo McDougall Regrets Nothing. I actually had the author Alison Winscotch on my show a couple of weeks ago, but it's about a congresswoman named Cleo McDougall, obviously, and she's considering a run for the presidency. And as part of her like revving up her campaign, she ends up dusting off this this list that she'd been keeping for all these years of like every regret that she ever had and like trying to figure out how to reconcile some of them and then deciding like which ones she doesn't really need to reconcile. And it's really cool. There's like female politician power, which I really appreciated, especially um, over the last couple of weeks. And there's not like this big focus on her having a big romantic ending. It's really about like her making things right with herself. And she's just this like awesome single mom who's trying to like take on the country. It's, It's really great. I highly recommend it. That sounds really fun. And I added both of those to my Goodreads list because those both speak, those topics speak to me. Recently, I read Pizza Girl by Jean Frazier, and that was a really fun, weird little novella about a girl who gets unexpectedly pregnant and she delivers pizza to save up some money and she meets a woman on her pizza route that kind of like changes her life, however you want to kind of take that. It's also like super short and I blew right through it. Totally a blast. I had a really good time reading that, especially because I had read a book about gentrification before that. So it was really nice to just read something like fun and light. Um, And also 
this is not a shocking recommendation. I'm sure everybody's been recommending this book, but uh, Leave the World Behind. I believe the hype is real. I really enjoyed this thriller. It is completely of its time and totally not. It has sort of like an omnipresent narrator, which I really appreciate. And it just kind of like has a very elegant style to it. It's about this sort of affluent affluent-ish New York couple that rents a house in Long Island that's literally in the middle of nowhere. And then there's a catastrophic event. And then the older Black people who own the home come and want to stay there while they're staying there. And you think it's about one thing, but it's definitely, it doesn't go any way you would expect. And don't read it at night because I freaked myself out. So there's that. Good tip. I am currently reading a biography on the 1980s rock band, The Replacements. It's called Trouble Boys. I like to read a lot of rock biographies and just books about music in general and music history. And it's a very, very good book because they were able to get all of the players involved, all the members uh, to tell their story. So I highly recommend that book and check it out if you are a fan of the band Replacements. That's my recommendation. Additionally, before we end for today, Ali, we want to thank you, of course, for joining us today. But where can people find you? Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Sure. So um, first of all, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. Um, So every week on my show, the SSR podcast, I bring a guest on and we basically pick a book from our middle or high school days. Sometimes they're like super classics like Little Women or The Cricket in Times Square um, or even older. And sometimes it's something a little bit newer like A Sweet Valley High or American Girl and like everything in between. And uh, we basically just reread those books and then look at them from a 2020 perspective. It's a lot of fun. Um, We look at what's problematic about them. We look at what's ridiculous about them. Um, We kind of decide about whether or not it like measures up or, or sort of holds up to our memories of these books and we talk about how they might be different in 2020 um and as you can imagine like these conversations also open up space for discussions about our own experiences with growing up going to the prom having breakups with our friends our first relationships um and also conversations about more contemporary pop culture so it's a lot of fun i'd love to have you come over and check it out i think if you're a fan of this podcast you probably will enjoy my show We are pretty much anywhere that you listen to your favorite podcasts, new episodes every Tuesday. Um, And then I would love to have you come say hey on social media too. I'm definitely mostly an Instagram girl. You can find me at SSRPod, um, but we are on Twitter at SSRPod too and on Facebook at the SSR Podcast. My best friend always makes fun of me because when I say things like we are on Instagram or we are on Facebook, I mean, it's just me. Um, So my best friend always is like, when you say things like that, right, it's the royal we, but my best friend is like, when you say things like that, I imagine you and Irv, who is my golden retriever. um, She's like, I imagine you and Irv like (laughs) sitting in, uh, in your podcast recording space being like, come follow us on social media. Um, but seriously, come on over, follow me, follow Irv. Um, my social media is a lot of Irv and he's very cute and also books and and, uh, all kinds of good stuff. So, uh, I'd love to have you come say, Hey, we're we're even a podcast that has a dog producer as well. So we have one more thing in common. My dog Murray is our quote unquote producer. He's the face of the show. Murray and Irv should maybe like connect and share resources and probably complain about us. And exactly. They can go have treats at the dog park and complain about their owners shilling them on podcasts <laughs> yeah i mean he has to look he has to pay his rent somehow so i, I mean let me take pictures of you and post them on instagram you get a tight 20 hours of sleep a day can i take one photo <laughs> yeah come on you can handle it thank you so much Allie. it was so much fun to have you on this is the best <laughs>
You know, we are so happy to have you. Thank you very, very much. Much like Ali's podcast, you can find us on all of the various podcast mediums you like to listen to. So if you want to check us out, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Pocket Casts. And one day we'll be on Amazon slash Audible when they start offering their podcast streaming app. Additionally, if you love the written word, we actually have a Medium page where we do all sorts of fun deep dives. Sometimes we just have an abundance of show notes and we start going off tangents, much like I did a few weeks ago when I decided to write about the history of the Bahamian classic, Who Let the Dogs Out? So if you would like to read a little bit more about that or my takes on the band Limp Bizkit or Margot's takes on the Josie and the Pussycat soundtrack, Come check us out on our Medium page at Old Millennials Pod. Additionally, we are on Instagram and on Facebook at The Old Millennials Pod. So check us out there. And finally, rate us, uh, subscribe to us, write a review. Let us know what you'd like to hear on the show. We're always open to hearing that. And finally, you can find us individually on Twitter. I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And I'm at Marg Shiro. And until next time, we say bye. 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 Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.